Well, it is good to be here this morning. The last three weeks, if uh, you've been with us, we've been in this series called B1, or the One Campaign, and uh, we've been talking about unity and oneness in the church, uh, the importance of it and what it means for the church. But oneness um, and unity can be difficult at times. And uh, how many of you know that sometimes it can be difficult to be on the same page with someone else? Have you experienced that? Well, imagine now trying to be on the same page with everyone that's in this room and how difficult that can be. And then everyone who's in this room and the room that's in Burlington for Mount Hope. And then everyone that's in all the rooms that call themselves Christian churches in this area and then throughout the nation that call themselves the church. Oneness, unity can be difficult. Uh, It can be difficult in a church. It can be difficult even for neighbors. I heard this story of a couple neighbors, Frank and Bob, who had trouble getting along. They were living next to each other. And finally, Frank got so fed up with the situation that he decided to write a letter. And uh, actually, Bob decided to write a letter. Bob decided to write a letter. And he started out the letter. He said, Dear Frank, we've been neighbors for six tumultuous years. When you borrowed my tiller, you returned it in pieces. When I was sick, you blasted your rap music. When your dog went to the bathroom on my lawn, you laughed. I could go on and on, but I am certainly not one to hold grudges. So I am writing you this letter to tell you that your house is on fire. <laughs> Cordially, Bob. It's hard to get together, even when your neighbors. I like even better the... Um, uh, story of in churches or in uh, gatherings, the story of a young rabbi who was, came into a new congregation and he was just there, he was just meeting with the new congregation and as he would meet, he would come across this problem in their meetings every week and here's what would happen. He, during the prayers, half of the congregation would stand and then half of the congregation would remain seated. And that would be fine, except that the half that was standing would always yell at the half that was seated and tell them they need to stand. And then the half that was seated would yell back at the half that was standing and tell them they need to sit. And he didn't know what to do. He couldn't get past this. So finally, he decided, well, I'm I'm just going to get to the root of this issue. So he went to find the founder of the congregation. He was in a nursing home, 99 years old, founding rabbi of the congregation, and he went to him, and he's talking, he said, yeah, things are going fine. He said, but I got this one problem I'm hoping you can help me with. So we come to the prayers during the service, half the congregation stands, and half the congregation sits, and I'm just coming to you, and I want to ask you, is it the tradition that we would stand during the prayers? And the old rabbi said, no, and he said, oh. Good. So we would sit during the prayers. And the old rabbi said, no. They said, well, you got to help me. You don't understand. I got chaos. Half the people stand and yell at the people who are sitting, and half the people sit and yell at the people who are standing. And he said, yes, that is the tradition. (laughs) Even in a church. It's hard. Unity is hard. It's not easy. A couple weeks ago, we talked about the fact that as Christians, we're supposed to be united because we are one in identity. We all have the same Father. We're supposed to be united in our actions. 
Jesus said, I do what I, saw the fa- I see the Father doing. And so we as Christians are supposed to say we are doing what we see the Father doing. We're one in our actions. Last week, we talked about even though we're one as the church, there's a way we're supposed to relate to those outside the church. We're not supposed to be isolated. We're not supposed to be absorbed. We're supposed to be engaged and positioned, highly engaged and not assimilated as we relate to the culture around us. But the question, but we want to do talk today on this final message about what the purpose of unity is. We all seem to like unity. I think even if you took a poll and you went out in Waverly Square, just went across the street to the Dunkin' Donuts and asked, are you for unity or against unity? I think most people are going to say, oh, we need to be, we need unity. People like unity. We're called the United States of America. We put it right in the name. We're for unity. And we don't always act that way. I heard California wants to secede and Texas, it seems like they're always trying to get out. But we still call ourselves the United States of America. We're for unity. I can't imagine what it would be like if you came across a group that was against unity. Like not against a cause, just against unity in general. Like, what would that look like, that you have, like, a, a news reporter interviewing a group? So what are you guys doing out here? Well, we're rallying. Well, what are you rallying for? Well, we are rallying against unity. We, we don't like unity. We're tired that people get along. We don't want unity. And I think even the most obtuse news reporter, you know, his next question would be, so you are all together against unity. And, you know, the guy would be, oh, shoot, we blew it again. You know, break it up. We can't be unified against unity. No one's against unity. We're all for unity. But here's the difference. There's a difference in the unity that Jesus talks about. The unity that we often talk about and look at is a unity that's from us and for us. It's a unity that we create. It's from us. And really, we benefit from. We like being together. We like getting along. And so it's from us and for us. But there's a difference in the unity that Jesus talks about in John 17. The unity that Jesus talks about and that we've been looking at in the Bible is not from us, and it's not for us either. And that makes it different than a lot of our ideas of what unity is. The unity we're talking about as Christians is not from us. John 17 is the passage we've been looking at the last few weeks. And if you remember, if you've been with us, you realize that John 17 is a prayer of Jesus. It's a prayer. It's Jesus just before he goes to the cross, spending time with the Father and praying. And so one of the things he prays for is he said, God, I pray that you would make them one. And so Jesus It's not a command, it's not a sermon, it's not an imperative statement, it's not Jesus going to his followers and saying, be one, it's Jesus going to his father and asking, would you make them one? And if we miss that point, we're going to miss an important aspect of unity, and the reality is unity is something that's received, not created. Something that's received from God and not created. Sometimes I think we come to Jesus' prayer in John 17, and we think it's kind of like the parent, the parent who's downstairs when the kids are upstairs and supposed to be in bed, 
And so the parent really loudly, you know, says, I really hope they're in bed now. And then slowly and loudly starts up the stairs, you know, giving them enough time to scatter under the covers and to get under there and close their eyes so that by the time you get up there, you know, they're in bed. And I think sometimes we come to Jesus' prayer and we think of it that way. Like, like Jesus is talking just loud enough so the disciples hear him, so they can be like, Jesus is coming back. We better get things together. We better start getting along because if he comes back and we're not getting along, we'll be in trouble. But that's not what this is. It's a prayer. And because it's a prayer, we ought to understand that Jesus is saying, if, if you're going to have unity... It's going to be because you've received it from God, not because you've created it in your own effort and in your own ability. It's arrogant of us to listen to the words Jesus prayed and then take the posture of, okay, okay, we'll do it. All right, all right, fine, we'll do it. We'll be one. We'll be unified. We'll make it happen if that's what you want. Really, the posture we ought to be taking is if Jesus had to pray for this, we probably need to pray for it too. Because if you think of every other aspect of Scripture, there's nothing that Jesus had to pray for that we're like, oh no, I can do that on my own. You know, Jesus healed people, Jesus cast out demons, Jesus did all kinds of miracles. None of those would we be like, oh, we, you know, we can do that on our own. Jesus had to pray for it, but we don't. And it's the same with unity. Jesus said, I pray that you would make them one. And for so many of us, we don't pray for it. We just say, oh, we'll just do it. It's just because we're not trying hard enough. But unity is not from us. If we're going to be one as a church, if we're going to be one with individuals, if we're going to be one together, it's because we've asked God for it and God has answered those prayers because we've received for it. Does it take effort on our part? Of course. But more so, it takes prayer and God's blessing and God's leading. So unity is not from us, but it's also true that unity is not for us. It's not for us. So if you have your Bible, I encourage you, open it up to John chapter 17. If you don't have one, there's hopefully one in a chair around you or someplace you can grab one around you there that you can look on or click over in your phone. Um... John chapter 17, going to start reading in verse 22 and read through verse 26 this morning. And this idea that unity is not for us, we're going to read in John chapter 17, verse 22 to 26. And here's what it says. The glory that you have given me I have given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one. I in them, and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that, say those two words with me, so that, let's do it once more, so that, because here it is, here's the point, not for us, the unity that they may be one, so that... Now I lost my place. So that the world 
so that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you loved me. Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am, to see my glory that you have given me, because you loved me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you, and these know that you have sent me. I made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. Jesus says, so that the world may know that you have sent me. So there's a purpose, this unity, and it's not just for us. It's not so we can be warm and sing songs that we enjoy and just kind of sit together and come together and all. That's great. But he says the purpose, the reason I want you guys to be united, the reason I want you guys to be together, the reason I want you to care about the person that's sitting next to you this morning and the person that is a part of the groups that you're a part of, the person that you know, the reason I want you to care about that is so that the world may know that God has sent Jesus. In other words, so that the world may know that Jesus is God and who he is. I thought about this and I thought, perhaps never has so much rested on so little. Perhaps never has something so important rested on something maybe so feeble as God's mission Resting on his followers, getting along and being one. I thought about this and it reminded me of, if you've ever read The Lord of the Rings by J.R. Tolkien or seen the movie, and I thought about how that goes and, and that, you know, the, this, the whole fate of this Middle Earth that was created by Tolkien rested not with the strong warriors Rested not with the, with the wise wizards of his day, but rested with a little halfling called a hobbit. And the fate of the world is carried by this little hobbit. And I kind of have that image in my mind as Jesus prays for his disciples. Father, make them one Because if they're one, the world will know you sent me. And I thought, Jesus must be thinking, looking around at these guys, thinking about these guys. One of them's about to betray him. Another one's about to deny him. The rest are about to scatter. They don't understand everything that's going on. And he's saying, if they can be one, the world will know that you have sent me. I am going to leave And I'm going to entrust this mission to this group of guys. I'm going to entrust this mission to these people. And one of the ways it's going to get accomplished is if they will be one. And these guys are just not too long before this. These guys are arguing about who was the greatest among them. Like, I'm the greatest. You're the greatest. And Jesus is like, if they can love each other, And get along, the world will know you've sent me. And so, so much has been entrusted to them. It's not for us. Unity is not for us. So when you are challenged by someone else in the church, when you are challenged by other Christians, when you are challenged by others in the body of Christ to love someone, remember that unity is not for you. Unity is for the mission of God that the world may know who Jesus is. 
You see, well, how does that happen? You say, well, I would say that the gathering of the church is so unique and the love that Jesus calls us to is so distinct in this world that if it would happen the way he wants it to happen, that people have to take notice. And they may say, I don't believe everything they believe, but man, they figured something out. Because I walk in there and there's people of all ages and all ethnicities and all races and our country right now is trying to figure out how do we figure out this race issue? How do we figure out this issue of getting... If the church would live the way that Jesus has called us to live, then the world would have to come and say, we may not agree and believe everything you believe, but you figured out something we can't figure out. And what is it? How is it that you have people of all ages and generations and races and ethnicities loving each other and we would have to say, Jesus, that's the only answer we have. That that's all we got. You know, I, I'm struck by the fact that the gathering of the church is such a unique gathering. There's no place maybe in our world that I can think of that's like it. I mean, there are other places in our world that you gather with people, right? Right? I mean, you go to movies, you go to sports stadiums, you go to events, you have large groups of people. So it may feel like, oh, there's lots of other places like this. But there's really not, is there? Because at those places, there may not be the diversity of ages that you would experience in a church. How often do you go to a place where there's people who are 90 and 9 sitting side by side with each other? And you say, well, well maybe... Maybe that happens in certain, maybe you go to a sports game and that happens. Yes, but in a sports stadium, maybe you got people who are 90 and 9 there who are thinking about each other and who are there who are aware of each other. But when I'm at the Red Sox game and I'm sitting in, you know, section 126, row HH, seat 3, I don't care about the person in seat 4 unless it's my wife. But if I didn't go to the game, I don't care about the person in seat 4. I'm certainly feeling no obligation to show sacrificial love to them. But that's the difference about being in a church. That that person that's sitting beside you this morning, that you are one with an identity and action, that you are called to love them as Christ has loved you. And that if we would live this out, and understand this, if we would be this body that would love one another and care for one another in such a way, Jesus is saying the world can't help but take notice and say, how are you doing that? There's got to be something. And it would say, and we would say, Jesus is our only answer. That's all we got. That's all we get to offer. And Jesus is saying the unity that we have is not for us that it points to something beyond us, and that really, it testifies to who Jesus is. Unity, people being together, Jesus knew could accomplish great things. I think one of a, a good example of this, uh, illustration of this, is the movie Miracle. Uh, it's been come out a while ago, 2004, I think it came out. How many have seen the movie Miracle? You have a copy of it. There you go, Nancy. Maybe we can all go over to Nancy's place and watch it sometime. The movie near... How many of you remember the 1980 Olympics and don't need to see the movie Miracle? Okay, all right. A few others, right? So the movie... So in the movie, what happened was, if you remember back in 1980, you had uh, the uh, Soviet team highly favored going into the Olympics. 
They're bigger, they're stronger, they're professionals. They were a highly, they were a prohibitive favorite going into the Olympics, and the U.S. team was certainly not made up of a bunch of amateurs and coached by a guy named Herb Brooks. And Herb Brooks is trying to bring together these young amateurs out of college and make them into a team. And it's not coming together the way that he wanted because there's so many differences that keep rising up. There's so many petty differences, especially since they used to play against each other in college. And so they keep kind of needling each other. They keep not getting along because of their allegiance to the college that they had before they were a part of this team. And so after one game, when they skated to a 3-3 tie against Norway, Coach Herb Brooks brings them back out onto the ice after they've already played a full game. And he has them start skating what became known as Herbie's. Herbies were, uh, it's like sprints, like wind sprints or suicides if you were on a basketball court where you're going, you know, the whistle blows, you go up, as, you go out as hard as you can and you come back as hard as you can, you go out as hard as you can, you come back and he has them do it again and again and again and again till they're bent over, sick. And he had this thing he'd always do too throughout his practices, he'd have them introduce themselves, they'd have to say their name, where they're from and who they played for. And so throughout running these Herbies, after they've played a full game and after they've done all these sprints, he would continue to ask them, who are you? And they would say their name, where they're from, and the, and the college they played for. And at one point, his assistant coach, his, at one point, his assistant coach is getting concerned, thinking that these guys are, you know, he, Herb has really lost his mind, and he's abusing these kids, and this is getting dangerous that he won't let them stop. And then finally, after one round of these Herbies, a young man bent over, says, my name is Mike Aruzioni. I'm from Winthrop, Massachusetts, and I play for the United States of America. And after that, Herb says, thank you, gentlemen. That'll be all. And they go home. Why? Because what Herb knew is if they were going to have any chance accomplishing this great thing that they were trying to accomplish they were going to have to be unified. The only chance they would have if they would identify and understand that they were one. And Jesus, I think, knew way before Herb Brooks or way before Benjamin Franklin that united we stand, surely divided will fall. Way before any of that, Jesus knew that if you could have unity among this group of followers, that they could accomplish something the world has never seen. That the message of Jesus Christ, the message of who he is, and the hope that he is, could impact and change the world. But they would have to be one. And so this unity is not from us, and it's not for us. But when we live one, and when we live in unity, what Jesus knew is the world could be changed by it. Let me share another passage with you. If you have your copy of God's word there, Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2. Acts is an account of the early church just after Jesus had ascended into heaven. And we have some accounts of how they lived and what went on in the early church and in Acts chapter 2, verses 42 through 47, we get a real glimpse of what it looked like when the early church got together and when they met. 
And listen to the description of their gathering, and then listen to what happens as a result of it in the end. This is what it says. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who are being saved. Here's what strikes me about that passage. is after a lengthy account of how these early followers of Jesus, these early Christians were loving one another, after a lengthy account of how they were sharing with one another, caring for one another's needs, eating meals together, taking care of one another, watching out for one another, that that's the time that it says, and more people were being added to the church. And more people were coming to believe in Jesus. And more people were coming to trust in Jesus. Wasn't after a great sermon, although that happened at times. Wasn't after, you know, this great message was given, although that certainly happened. But it was here in Acts 2.42, it says, they shared, they loved, they fellowshiped, they took care of each other, and the church grew. And the world came to believe. And this is a bit what it looks like when people come into this building on a Sunday morning or any time. They may be struck by a number of things. They may be struck by the great music, and that was wonderful this morning. They may have not grown up or understood or seen church like this, and maybe that was you at one point, and you're like, wow, why are there guitars and drums on the stage? That's new. That, I don't know. That's not, that's not church as I understand it. They may be struck by by all kinds of things, but what they ought to be impacted by most is, man, there's a group of people that care about each other. There's a group of people that really love each other, and I'd like to know more about that. And I'd like to know more about the God that they serve and the God that they know. The truth is that of all the things that'll testify to this world about who Jesus is, When he had a chance to pray his last prayer before going to the cross, as John records it, the thing he prayed for is, Lord, make them one so that the world may know that you have sent me. So your love and concern for that person sitting beside you, for that prayer request that Pastor Brian will share on this this platform at time to time and you hear about a need from those needs you hear about of the people in the church. It's not just an opportunity to pray, although it's that. It's not just so you would know, although it's that. It's so that we can love one another, so that we can care for one another, so that we can be the church that Jesus desired. How do we get it? How do we get this unity? How do we get this oneness? Because I want to be a part of a church like that. Because I want to be a part of a body like that. How do we get it? Well, we don't just need to try harder. 
We have to go back to how we started this message. If we're going to have it, we need to pray for it. We need to ask God for it because that's what Jesus did. The oneness in the body, the unity of the church should be a major focus of our prayer because it was a major focus of Jesus's prayer and because he said this is how the mission will get accomplished. So my question for you this morning, when the last time you prayed that the body of Christ would be one? When's the last time you prayed that the church would have unity and be one? How often do we pray that the church would have oneness and unity? Because if we're not praying for it, I can think of only three reasons why that's the case. Either we don't think it's important, or we don't think prayer is needed or will change the situation, or we think we already have it. And I'm pretty sure, I look at the church, that we don't already have it. There's places we can be more unified and one in the church at large and probably in this room here. I'm also sure that prayer changes things, that God hears and listens and responds to prayer, and that if Jesus prayed for it, I need to pray for it. So if I'm not praying for it on a regular basis... Maybe the answer is, I just don't understand how important it really is. Because Jesus considered it of critical importance. Took some of his last words on earth to pray them to God. So let us also pray for this unity that Jesus desires for his church. This unity that's not from us, ultimately not for us, but is critical to accomplishing the mission of God in this world.